Well, if you would, grab your uh, pew Bibles or the scriptures you brought with you and turn to uh, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 17. We'll read verses 17 uh, through 33. As you're turning there, in just a, a little bit of way of review, too, and to get us back into the context of, of where, we're, where we're at, uh, if you look at the, the book of Acts, the first four or five chapters that we've uh, looked at, there's a back and forth uh, to it. There's a swinging back and forth uh, to it, meaning this. It, there's some points when the focus of the book of Acts is on the fellowship uh, of the church, the church together or church uh, alone, so to speak. And at other points, there's a, um, a focus where the, it's outward. The church, is, the church is relating to the world, so to speak. And here's what I mean. In chapter 1, you have the church alone. You have Jesus and the disciples together. Jesus is taken up in a cloud. He's uh, ruling and reigning uh, now. And the church goes into their first prayer meeting together. And then it swings the other way. The church is interacting with the world. The day of Pentecost in chapter 2. Uh, the disciples uh, are engaging, proclaiming uh, the gospel, uh, winning people to Christ. And then the end of chapter 2, there is a focus on uh, the church. The church gathered together uh, again, devoted to the fellowship, apostles' teaching, devoted to Lord's Supper, devoted to prayer. Then you get to chapter 3. There's an outward focus again. Peter and John uh, hear, heal a man that, that's lame as they're going uh, to church. Uh, because of that, uh, they're persecuted. They're hauled before the church or the Jewish leadership church council there, council, uh, and they're told, don't talk about Jesus anymore. No more evangelism. You're done. Then it swings the other way. The fellowship or the church alone, they go into their second prayer meeting. Uh, what do we do in light of what they said? Uh, they pray for boldness because they want to be faithful. And then the pendulum swings this way, what we're going to look at uh, this morning uh, the church engaged with the world, the church proclaiming the gospel. And many times when we've seen the church begin to engage with the world, uh, it comes in the, in the form of, or persecution is, is sometimes a result of it, or part of their uh, cost there of doing that. And the, re- the reason I bring that up is, and give us pause to think, well, what, how does that pattern help us today? How does this pattern help us as a church of Christ today? Well, the pattern helps us to see that there's times when we do need to be uh, the church, uh, alone with the Lord, so to speak, uh, working and seeing God work in our own lives. And there's moments in our life as a church and as individuals when we're engaged with the world, talking about the gospel, sharing the gospel, uh, serving other people, uh, taking the initiative uh, somehow to, to love our neighbor. There's a back and forth, and we need both. And the church is characterized by both of those those things. So having said that, let's take a moment to read God's word, starting in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Would you stand together uh, as you're able for the reading of God's word to us here this morning? Again, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Then the high priests and all the associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them into public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. 
But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as a prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we hear this story, as we hear what happened to the early church, as we hear about their interaction um, with those that don't believe, uh, we pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray in some cases you would show us the weight and the the glory of your gospel on our own lives and what it means for us as people. At the same time, you would burden us uh, for the lost, those that don't know you, and how we can better pray for them and how we can better love them. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please be seated? There's a child in our house who has a favorite movie called the, the Lego Movie. And when this first came out, uh, we saw trailers for it. Um, I have to admit, it, it kind of creeped me out, to be honest, okay? You've got these plastic Lego figures that are walking around, and they're talking, and they're doing all this kind of stuff. And I was like, this is kind of creepy. But the kids were into it. They wanted to see it, so we went to see it. And uh, to be honest, it was, it was really a clever movie. It was really uh, engaging. It held my attention throughout, and it wasn't really weird or creepy as I thought maybe it would be. There's a bad guy in the movie named Lord Business, okay? He's played by Will Ferrell in terms of his voice. That's Lord Business's voice is Will Ferrell. And he's Lord Business because, and he's the bad guy because he wants to glue all the Lego bricks in Lego world together with crazy glue. So they can never be uh, pulled apart, okay? It drives them crazy for whatever reason. He wants those bricks glued together with crazy glue. And you've got the good guys. And they are, most of them are called uh, master builders, okay? Lowercase m, lowercase b, master builders. And they are in search of the master builder, capital M, capital B. The one they call the extraordinary one or the one. And they find this one, he's the one that's going to, to uh, take care of Lord Business and his desire to glue everything uh, together. We all know how devastating that could be. And so they find this one guy named Emmett, and they think he's the one, he's the extraordinary one. And Emmett, they label as the one because he's got a red cap stuck to his back. And this red cap, you find out later on in the movie, is, it's literally a cap that's supposed to go over... Uh, the crazy glue, glue, so it doesn't 
glue anything, okay? And you look at Emmett, and he is totally this normal, ordinary dude. There is nothing extraordinary about him, nothing special about him. And as you go in the movie, and he's celebrated as the one, uh, there's, there's some kind of pushback because one, he's so ordinary, he doesn't look extraordinary at all. There's no way this is, there's anything special about him. There's nothing that stands up about him. He's just this ordinary, non-extraordinary guy. But he's labeled as the one that's going to change and bring so much change and save and fix things. I bring that up because if you think about uh, Peter and you think about the disciples in this passage, there really is nothing extraordinary about them. They are ordinary men who have been called to this extraordinary task. And we see them as they are debating back and forth, and we see their boldness here in this chapter and, and last week's chapter as well. They're doing something extraordinary, but they're really ordinary. It was only months ago, it was only a short time ago, Peter, for example, was running away from a teenage girl that was accusing him of being a follower of Christ before Christ was actually put to death on a cross. Uh, These were very, uh, the the Gospels paint them, these men, as very uh, weak, as those who are not really risking much, not really sticking themselves out to do anything extraordinary. But in a short time, post-resurrection, they are full of incredible boldness. Uh, they're doing incredible things as God is using them uh, to do this ministry here in Jerusalem. And as the text says, fill Jerusalem with this teaching of Christ. There are many reasons why we had this radical change in them. But the thing I want to look at this morning and to guide as we look at this passage is the gospel. The gospel has has gotten into their bones, it's gotten into their bloodstream, it's gotten into their lives, and that's what's providing this power. That's what's enabling them to do this extraordinary stuff in the hands of God. And so what I want to do is say, how does this passage teach us about the gospel? What does it show us about the gospel? And three things I think it's revealing to us. that The gospel for some means unbelief. It it means not understanding The gospel means response. The gospel calls for a response. And the gospel also gives us a hero, okay? Unbelief, response, and a hero. And we'll unpack these as we move through them. First, the gospel can be blinding, so to speak. And I say blinding because sometimes the gospel is met with unbelief. It's not valued. It's not accepted as you would uh, think would be the case. And case in point is obviously the Sadducees, these religious leaders that the apostles are continuing to butt heads uh, against. And the thing that's distinguished about the Sadducees here particularly is that they are upset and they're meeting all this with unbelief is because of their, their jealousy. They're jealous of what is going on, as Luke in the text points out. And the simple question is, well, why? Why are they so jealous? Why are they frustrated with what these disciples and what these apostles are doing? Well, think about who they are. The Sadducees are the chief priests. They are, um, carry a lot of weight in their uh, community of faith. They carry a lot of weight in Jerusalem. Uh, they have authority. They have power. And then they see these men seemingly out of nowhere talking about this Jesus person who they put to death. Put to death. They know who he is. They've, they've met him. They've seen him face to face. They put this gentleman to death. And now the this, this city is being filled with this teaching, and people's lives are being changed, and they feel like they're being marginalized. They're being pushed to the sides 
because of these men, because of these individuals. And so in response, the first they tell them, you can't talk about this anymore. You can't do this. Well, that doesn't work because they go forth and they keep talking about Christ and the gospel. And they decide, well, let's put them in jail. And so they arrest them and they put them in public jail. And that's where we find them. That's kind of where we pick up the story starting in verse 17. They've been arrested by this group of religious leaders. But it turns out that they've been freed. They've been let loose, so to speak, and they go and they begin to into the city and proclaim the gospel. But take a step back and again think about these Sadducees. The thing about these Sadducees is they don't believe in the supernatural as much as maybe some of the other Jewish groups do. Particularly, they're not ones who believe or are expecting any kind of resurrection. And you would think a a group like this, with the things that they have witnessed, would do the reasonable thing and consider the facts. On some level, maybe I could understand, and maybe we could understand why they deny Jesus, why they deny him as a Messiah, as a Savior, as one who comes uh, to reveal the will of the Father. But what's unreasonable, it seems, is that they would not stop and consider the evidence, so to speak. In the passage right before this, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And some of you are familiar with that story. They sell this property and they lie about uh, the proceeds. And God, by the Spirit, strikes them dead. Both these individuals struck dead right in front of the apostles. Very dramatic. And you would think they would have heard about that story. They would have heard what happened there. The word of that would have spread. And you would think before that, this lame man, that these religious leaders have to know about. They have to witness him. They have to remember who he is because he's always out in the temple courts. He's always out there. They would remember his face. And the apostles walk by and they heal him. He's a completely different man. He was lame, but now he's walking, going about and living a normal life, so to speak. They would have have to know about that. And you would think they'd say, they would say, you know, this is what we believe about the spiritual and about what God's word says. But we, maybe we should push pause on that and, and deal with the evidence as we're seeing it. Deal with these signs. Deal with these wonders. Deal with the teaching and, and kind of digest and, and sift through this teaching that these apostles are presenting to the people. And why it's catching such fire and why it's catching so much attention. But they don't. And the funny thing about the text, if you think about it, here are the Sadducees saying, we're in control of this city. We're in control of the spiritual climate and understanding here. So disciples, we're arresting you. We're going to put you in prison. And the funny thing is, the ironic thing is, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord comes, releases them, and tells them to go back out into the public, go back into the temple, and talk about this life. It's like God is saying, you think you can control me. You think you can contain the gospel, but you can't. Uh, My word cannot be contained. My people cannot be contained. If I want to get my word out there, if I want to spread this gospel, then I'm going to make it happen. If I'm going to tell people about this life, it's going to happen. I want people to hear about this message. John, in chapter 10, Jesus talks about the abundant life, that Jesus promises an abundant life. And Jesus is saying, I want this word to go out. I want it to spread. That's why I'm pushing my disciples to go out into the temple courts and do this. And at this point, as we think about the unbelief of the Sadducees or these religious leaders, the easy thing would be to, you know, to pile on them a little bit and say, how could they not believe? How could they not get it? Don't they they see what's going on? Don't they see events like Pentecost or 
uh, the signs and wonders of somebody being healed, how come they not get it through their head? And I think maybe to reserve a, a severe judgment on them, because there are moments in our lives, there's pockets in our lives where we meet the gospel, we meet the Bible, we meet God himself with a sense of unbelief. We doubt his promises. We doubt that he's really that good. We doubt that he's really that true in our lives. And so If you doubt me, think about it like this. When was the last time you said in your heart and in your head, God, you must be frustrated with me. You must hate me because I've done this, this, and that. That's meeting the gospel with unbelief. Because God doesn't love us according to our record, but he loves us according to the record of the son that came into our lives. Other times we may see our circumstances and we, and we reason in our hearts, God, you must not be in control because this, this, and this are happening in my life. You must not love me. We're meeting the Bible. We're meeting the gospel with unbelief. God has already done the hard thing, as we've talked about before. He sent his son to die for us. That's the extraordinary thing. Surely he's going to take care of the, the regular, uh, the, the, the ongoing troubles that we face day in and day out. Well, that's the gospel being met with unbelief. Let's think about uh, how the gospel needs a response. The gospel needs a response. Peter is, is taken back uh, to the Sanhedrin, back into our story. And we read as we look at that dialogue back and forth, basically Peter's sharing the gospel with him. He's talking about the good news of Christ and what he has done and and who he is. And all along, he's stressing that needs to be a response. There needs to be a response. Look at verse 32. We are witnesses to these things, Peter says, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. To those who obey him. The gospel needs that kind of response. God doesn't present the good news to us to absorb it just with our minds, maybe once or twice a week. He doesn't give the good news to us so that we can just kind of uh, take it in as maybe a philosophy of life or a philosophy of teaching or something like that. He doesn't present it to us that we can listen to it maybe in a detached kind of way, that we kind of go through the motions of it mechanically. But he says, I want you to obey my gospel. I want it to sink into your life and into your heart, into your bloodstream of all that you are. In other words, the gospel should be shaping you. It should be uh, doing something in your head and in your heart to make you different. It should be the central thing about all that you are. I've heard it described like this. Say you have uh, somebody who makes tools for a living. They make them out of iron or steel or whatever metal product that there is. They heat all that up and they pour it into a mold. And they let the mold and let that metal uh, seep into all the corners of the mold and that's how it gets its shape. Well, the Bible would say to us, basically, that's who we are in relationship to the gospel. That our lives should be poured into the mold of the gospel. That it should shape us. It should control us. It should be our identity. It should be the thing that we come to, to look like and resemble And some of you may be at this point thinking, well, I hear what you're saying. The gospel is important, and I need to value it, and I need to obey it. I don't know if I need to be molded into it. I mean, I'm not that bad of a person. It's like, yeah, I need to be nicer to my kids and more thoughtful towards my spouse and maybe a better worker uh, at work. But those are just some rough edges that need to be hammered away at and, and smoothed over. That's not how the Bible talks about us. The Bible talks about us and how we relate to God as a people who completely factor him out of the equation of our lives, that we don't consider him, 
We don't consider that, that his word, his law, his commandments. We don't consider his promises. And the call of the gospel is to factor God into your life completely, fully, wholeheartedly, with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, to know him like that and to be found in him like that. Think about it like this. There's sometimes in your life when you hit uh, hard times, difficulties, sometimes there are major difficulties that feel like the new normal. Sometimes it's just more minor inconveniences that, that come into your life and into your world. And when we hit those moments, to kind of test ourselves, we think to ourselves, you know, if this was gone, I'd be a happier person. Or if that circumstance was gone, I'd be a happier person. Or if this person was no longer in my life, I'd be a lot happier person and be less stressed. And you may be a lot happier person if those things are gone, if that person or a situation or that circumstance is removed. But the thing is, you're always going to have new situations, new people, new circumstances that rob you of happiness or rob you of peace, rob you of contentment. And the gospel says to us, don't put your identity in your stuff, in your circumstances, in all those little things that on some level are great and we should welcome those things, those blessings. But trust me, I'm never going to change. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to turn a blind eye to you, regardless of how bad your circumstances are, regardless how much pushback you get for, for living a Christian life. I'm always going to be there for you. And that, in part, is what it looks like to respond to the gospel, to say, God, I want you to be the central thing in my life. I want you to be that central truth day in and day out as I walk through this life that you've called me to. Well, some of you are saying, well, that sounds good. That sounds great. I'd love to have the gospel bring that kind of joy and peace that, that seems to, to move me uh, through hard circumstances. But if we're honest, we struggle with that. We struggle with the reality of that, to live that in a, a boots-on-the-ground kind of way. It sounds great in this kind of environment, but what about Tuesday morning? Or what about Wednesday afternoon? Uh, how am I supposed to be living out the gospel? How am I supposed to see him identified, uh, be identified with him. Well, I think this is where we need to see the hero of the gospel, the hero of the gospel. And this is where I get that. In verse 31, uh, Jesus is described as our leader and savior. Uh, Your translation, since the NIV especially, may have prince and savior. But to key in on that word that's translated as leader or prince, it's a Greek word, and it's only used four times in the New Testament. And when a word is only used four times in the New Testament, it's, it's very, it can be really difficult to translate in a sense and say, what does this mean? What does it mean that he's a leader? What does it mean that he's a prince? It's used in Hebrews chapter 12, and there it's used in the sense of uh, the one who originates our faith or the pioneer or the founder of our faith to describe Christ. And that's helpful. But the people who know these things and the people who spend a lot of time and print these great giant books will say that that word is also used uh, in, in the Greek, that Greek word is also used in Greek literature, which is a great place to go to get a fuller understanding what, what, is, what do these words mean and how might the apostles be using it. And that word is used in relation to hero. And it's used in relation to somebody like Hercules. He's a hero. And I think that helps us as we think about Christ as our leader or as our prince or as our hero and savior. Think about what does a leader, excuse me, what does a hero do? A hero is somebody who basically says, I care so much about this thing, or I care so much about this person, that I'm willing to stand in the gap, 
so that thing is protected, so that thing is looked after, so that thing is cared for. Leaders don't stick in the crowd. They don't hide out. They're, they're not indifferent to things, but they risk themselves. They put themselves out there and they say, I'll, I'll take the hit for this. I'll put forth the effort so that this thing will stay, so it'll be protected, so it'll be watched over. There's a movie called The Last of Mohicans. It came out in 1992, which in my mind is a long time ago. Okay, it shouldn't be a long time ago, but it's a long time ago. 20 plus years ago. 1992, Last of the Mohicans. And it's a movie about, uh, um, takes place during the French and Indian War, okay? And at the end of that movie, there's a scene where this woman named Cora has been taken by the Huron Indians. And the reason they've taken Cora is because her family has, quote-unquote, sinned against the Huron Indians. They've, they, they, he has done something to them, and now they're going to hold Cora accountable for what her family has done. And so she's presented before the, the chief of the Huron Indians, and he pronounces a sentence on her, and he says that you are, uh, you're sentenced to death, and you're sentenced to death by being burned uh, effectively at the stake, basically, burned alive. But she's got with her uh, another man named Duncan, and another guy named Hawkeye. And Duncan loves Cora. He wants to marry her, but Cora just doesn't feel the same way uh, about him. It's just, it's just not clicking. But Duncan says, I want my life for her life. He speaks to the Huron chief, and they speak in French back and forth, and he says, uh, let me die in her place. And the Huron chief contemplates this for a moment, and he says, okay. And he releases Cora, and he immediately takes uh, Duncan ties him up to the stake, and Cora's freaking out, like, what is going on? Why are you doing this? What's going on? And Hawkeye has to translate, this is what Duncan has decided to do. He wants to die in your place. In essence, that's what a hero is. A a hero says me for them. A hero says me for you. As we think about Christ, as we think about labeling him as the hero or the leader, the pioneer, the originator of our salvation, he is the hero. And we begin to ask, what is it that he cares about so much that he's willing to die, that he's willing to, to, to go and, and give his life up? What he cares about is righteousness and holiness. That's what he values. That's what he holds dear, so much so that he's come and he's willing to die for us in our place, to pay for our lack of righteousness, our lack of holiness, so that we can be found with God to know him. Do you notice how Peter gives this testimony? He talks about Jesus being hung on a tree. And these religious leaders, they would know that reference to being hung on a tree because they would know their Old Testament. They would know what it says in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Peter, in a brilliant way, is making reference to Christ is the one that bore the curse for us. He died in our place. That's why he's our hero. Because Christ has said to us, me for you. I'm going to die in your place. And the reason that's important, as we talked about a moment ago, how the gospel needs a response, not just one time, but day in and day out, constantly we need responding to it. And what helps us in that struggle to find our identity in Christ or to believe in him is to remember that Christ is your hero, that every day he says to you, says to us, me for you. I know what you did last week, I know what you're going to do next week. I know, how I know what you're thinking. I know your, your thoughts. I know everything about you. And he still says to us, me for you. You may be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm getting this message of me for you? How do I know if it's, if it's really there? 
Are you looking less at yourself? Are, are you, as you look at your life, as you look at your reputation, as you look at all the things that you do, are you seeing day in and day out, you know, those things don't mean nothing to God. They mean nothing to him. He sees me as unworthy. Do you see yourself as completely unworthy apart from Christ? That's when you know the gospel is sinking in. That's when you know it's re- that's when it really becomes good news, is when you see your unworthiness. Because when you see your unworthiness, when you see your sin, then you see a need for a savior. If you don't see yourself as sinful, as doing things that's breaking people's hearts, breaking people's lives, as ripping apart your own heart and life, then you have no need for a savior. You have no need to be here. You have no need for the Bible at all, really, in your life. But if you see your brokenness, if you see your rebellion, if you see where you don't measure up, then Jesus is of value to you. And that's how you know you're allowing the gospel to come into your heart and into your life. And not only is there a sense of giving up on yourself and putting everything you have upon him, there's a sense of joy. You know you're getting the gospel when you want to rejoice. God, you've saved me. You've rescued me. I know what I did last week. I know what I said to my spouse last night. I know how angry and frustrated I was with my kids and trying to get him uh, to church here this morning. And a lot of all those things, you love me. You say to me, me for you. That's what Peter got. That's what the disciples got. That's what seeped into their blood and into their lives and their hearts into their minds. And they realized we have to be faithful. We have to be bold. We have to stand up to this persecution. We have to keep proclaiming Christ. We have to keep filling the city with the name of Christ because it's true. Because he changed my life. Because he's changing other people's lives. And I want to be faithful to that. Would you pray with me and pray that he would show us how we can be more faithful to him. Father God, we we know we're on our own unfaithfulness. Uh, We know it in broad strokes. And if we take the, the time with a sense of honesty and integrity... We know the major ways that we really fall short, that we fail to love uh, our neighbor as ourselves. We fail to sacrifice. We fail to think about others. We know the times when we're lazy and we're indifferent, when we'd rather do this or that. And we remember those things not to necessarily to, to shame us, but for us to realize how much we need you and how much your gospel needs our response of obedience, of faith, of prayer, of singing, of, of meditating, in various ways how we can respond to you. And so would you help us as your church and as your people uh, to be the people that you've called us to be as we see it in your good news. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.